uh, is on the board. And let's read the text of Psalm 27, the New American Standard Bible. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I will be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my mother, my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despised, excuse me, I would have despaired. Notice all of the first of verse 13, as it is in the New American Standard, is in italics. It may be different in your version, but the first statement that is correlating to the Hebrew text is this. Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, wait for the Lord, be strong in your courage, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait. For the Lord. And of course, verse 14 has made its way into our songs as well. So, Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Now, this verse 1 and verse 3 are a classic example of what we could call. We have different kinds of parallelism. And when we talk about parallelism, we're trying to describe relationships between lines. But this would be a good example of AB-AB parallelism. Uh, Sometimes you have AB-BA parallelism, which is no relation to the Swedish group from the 70s. Uh, But uh, AB-AB... And what I mean by that, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. He speaks of the Lord. In the other A line, the Lord is the defense of my life. Those two lines are basically stating the same thing. 
then the beelines are basically stating the same things. In light of the fact that the Lord is my life and my salvation, the question is, whom shall I fear? In light of the fact the Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? So, you see that these two lines connect as a result of who the Lord is, who should we fear, who should we dread. Now, the same kind of structure, that is in 27.1, the same kind of structure is in 27.3. Here, though a host encamp against me, he talks here not about the Lord, but about a threatening circumstance. A host encamp against me. Though that host account against me, my heart will not fear. And then in this, the other A line, though war arise against me, I shall be confident. Now that's what I mean by an A-B-A-B parallelism that basically in these verses you have four lines. Uh, sometimes you will see them described as cola. Um, and, but each of them... Does everyone understand the arrangement that I'm describing there? And to me, that helps understand a little bit. Sometimes this breaking down the sentence in the parallel lines helps me understand the, the passage sometimes it doesn't right here I think it is helpful to see uh, it's helpful for me now the Lord is my light and my salvation now I was interested in this often we see this image of light and you can think what all is conveyed by light uh, and light is pretty early in the Bible uh, because you have in Genesis 1-3 God saying, let there be light. And light brings uh, things, makes things visible in the midst of darkness and confusion. But this is the, the Bible often speaks of light. This is the only time specifically in the Old Testament God is said to be my light. God is my light and God is my salvation. He is my defense. So who should we fear? Who should we dread? Now, how many of you intellectually disagree with that verse? Anybody? How many of you have always practiced that? Same number of hands. (laughs) The very fact that he says, whom should I fear and whom should I dread seem to imply circumstances that would lead people to fear and would lead people to dread. But what can we look to for security in the midst of a world that would bring fear and dread the Lord 
who is our light. And the Lord who is the defense of our life. This word defense, and I didn't check all the other translations as thoroughly this time as I do some. It can be translated stronghold. It can be translated refuge. What do your versions have there in verse 1? Anything different? But it can't go. It's it's the the Lord is the defense of my life. It's the middle line. Um, Yeah, the New King James says the strength. Strength of my life. Strength of my life. Whom shall I dread? Okay, but God is all these things to us. Yes, right. Um, New Revised Standard says stronghold of my life. Stronghold. Stronghold. I've got a footnote that says refuge. Refuge, yes. All those are legitimate terms. Um, That source, um, that source that I have mentioned, I know I mentioned it to John personally, I've mentioned it to a few personally. If you look up on Bible Hub, uh, there is Bible Hub, it can give you, if you look up Hebrew Bible Hub or Greek Bible Hub, it can give you and I hate to give internet advice. There's no person less capable of that than I am. But you can click. I can show you a place you can click it and show you other uses of that word. But this is the problem. If you all do this, uh, you're going to know the simple points I'm going to make beforehand. So that's the danger of giving y'all some of my sources. Uh, but and you might uh, the <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Probably just that Bible Hub would be overwhelmed. Um, but but anyway, it, it can show you different places that word is used and how it's translated. Some have suggested that verse two. Because of the tenses in the Hebrew are different. Verse 2 may talk about events that are past tense. And verse 3 may talk about events that are future. But both of these passages talk about the worst case scenarios. And it emphasizes in the midst of these worst case scenarios, still... God can defend us. God who is our light and our salvation can strengthen us. In verse 2, When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. When they come to destroy me, they are bringing about their own demise and their own disaster. They will be the ones who will be hurt in attacking me. Not not me, but them. And so verse 2, some have suggested is past tense as he looks back upon troubles. Verse 3 is is future. Uh, Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. He is imagining worst case scenarios. I mean, to think about a host, an army uh, encompassing you and coming against you in battle. And how much worse does it get than that? And yet, he says, my heart will not fear and I will not be 
in dread. Because God is more powerful than all of our foes. God is more powerful than any disease. God is more powerful uh, than any trouble that can come in our lives. Does that mean that we will always be delivered or rescued? No. No. And I think that is a reason sometimes for our fear. But God is more powerful. And that does provide strength. That He must have some purpose in us going through some kind of crisis. Now, right now in these first three verses that emphasize trust in the Lord in the midst of a crisis, do you have a question? Do you have an idea there? Okay, verses 4 through 6, and all the first six verses are pretty positive but it describes the Lord being a shelter in the midst of storm. He says, One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I may that I shall see, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in His temple. You remember when Jesus was talking to Mary and Martha and Mary was listening to His words and Martha was busy serving. And Martha says, um, and Jesus comes to Jesus about, you know, I'm doing all this serving alone and my sister's not helping me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. To emphasize one thing means that it has priority over all other things. He says, one thing I have asked from the Lord. Now actually, when we look into this this whole psalm, he makes more than one request, doesn't he? So he's asking more than one thing. But but for him to preface this statement this way shows his primary concern. His primary concern. One thing he has asked of the Lord to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose? The purpose, he says, is to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Yes, our assembly is an opportunity to encourage each other. But also, never lose sight of the fact that the assembly is a place to see the beauty of the Lord. To contemplate the glory of the Lord and to meditate on Him. To be lost in the thought of God's glory and God's wonder. I am not saying that there are never individual circumstances where we can do that. There are individual circumstances where we can do that. 
but 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 there is a power to going to the house of the Lord to join with others in beholding the beauty of the Lord and to meditate on him now now in there are several psalms here connected that make this point psalm 23 6 which says uh, i will dwell in the house of the lord forever psalm 26 8 O lord i love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells there is a wonder there's an awe to going to the house of god and to come to the house of god is a place of security is a place of safety it's a place of refuge in verse 5 for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle in the, in the secret places of his tent he will hide me so God conceals us God hides us in uh, his in his house now, um, we, we discussed recently, maybe even last week, I don't know, um, how in the Old Testament there were cities of refuge. And not only were there cities of refuge, but another thing that a person could do if, if they had taken a life accidentally, they've not killed a person intentionally, but they've taken a life accidentally, and they go to the horns of the altar and hold on to the horns of the altar. That God's house was literally a place of refuge. It, it became a practice because of that biblical concept. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, if someone was accused of a great crime, if they could go to a church as a place of refuge. And... I'm using that, not saying that was always done well or rightly, but using that as a kind of illustration. It's like the writer here finds comfort in that God can conceal him and God can hide him in his tabernacle. And he can hide him in his secret place. The commercial ask of one commercial asked, have you ever just wanted to get away? I don't know if it's still going on or not, but, but there have all been cases where we wanted to get away, hide away. Maybe after a mistake, maybe after something foolish we've done. Where can we do that? We can do that in the Lord and in the house of the Lord. It is interesting, later this same word, hide, which is used in verse 5, will be used in verse 9. In verse 9, when this word is used again, David is begging God, do not hide your face from me. And while he begs God not to hide his face, here he begs God, hide me, hide me. In the day, in the day of trouble. And God will lift me up on a rock. The idea of lifting up on a rock is we're a place of safety. We're outside of the 
flowing waters or outside the trouble. And in verse 6, Now my head will be lifted up above my enemies, and I will offer in his tents the sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. One of the things that's interesting here, and we'll find this in in several of the Psalms, is there is a connection between offering sacrifices and joy. You know, sometimes we look back on those Old Testament sacrificial laws and we say, well, I'm glad I didn't live then and it would have been uh, so bad to worship uh, in those kind of days, in that kind of way. In the book of Psalms, you don't get that idea those people felt that way. Those people rejoiced in worshiping God in the way they were. And it was a cause of celebration. It was a cause of joy to bring your sacrifice to the Lord and to praise His name as a result of all He had done for you and all He had given you and all the ways that He blessed you. Now, what strikes you? about those first six verses or what question do you have anything Sarah so I can see that you've got house and temple going together and tent and tabern- or tabernacle and tent does the rock at the end of verse 5 also fit in that kind of sequence or should it be read <coughs> yeah I think the rock is it, it fits in that sequence it doesn't always mean it is exactly parallel but, but a lot of times in the Psalms, we will find the Lord as the rock. For example, in 28.1, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. The rock here seems to be separate from God himself, though understanding how rock is used of God so many times in the Psalms, it may have you know those kind of overtones. But yes, I, I think that all of those, Sarah, uh, tabernacle, uh, secret place, tent, that all of these words with rock are just places of safety and security. So they're all connected, uh, but, but some of them more closely parallel than mm-hmm. others. Good thought. What, what else? What other things do you have? I don't know if I expressed this well at first, um, but there's a difference between Psalm 27 and a lot of psalms. This psalm begins on more of a note of praise. And it ends on more of a note of lament. Now how's that different than other psalms? How would it be? Usually it begins, well, a lot of them begin with, here's the problem, and then, oh, God has fixed it, and now we will praise Him. Yes, it usually moves the other direction. It, it, it often goes from lament to praise, instead of praise to lament. That This is not the only psalm that does this. Psalm 89 is the strongest example of it. But, but this psalm does this. I mean, it has a section... Of, it's closer to praise at first and lament at the end. 
But in light of who God is, in light of the fact that the Lord is my light and my salvation, the Lord is the defense of my life, in light of the fact that no enemy can stand before Him, and that God can conceal me and hide me away in a day of trouble, in light of all of this, He now calls upon God in the midst of His difficult circumstances and begs God to bless Him. In verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Now, in verses 8 and 9, the word seek will be used three times. The word face will be used three times. Each time, it is the same Hebrew word. Uh, in verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. Same word that's used here in 8 and 9. But, but in verse um, 8, you notice the New American Standard has the words in italics when you said, Apparently quoting from God. Some of your translations may start at verse 8 just simply saying, Seek my face. But obviously if someone's saying, Seek my face, it seems to be God. His response to God is, Your face I shall seek. But again, he views the worship of God as an opportunity to seek the face of God. Your face, O Lord, I shall not seek. And do not hide your face from me. As we've already pointed out, he asked to be hidden in the day of trouble, but he asked God, he begs God, don't hide your face. All good blessings are the result of God's face shining on us. We haven't quoted it in a while, but the priestly blessing in number 6, beginning with verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. When the Lord turns away His face, that's disaster. When the Lord shines His face, remember the Bible says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In Psalm 34, which is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 3. But do not hide your face. For any of us to be hidden from the face of God is the ultimate disaster. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me. O God of my salvation. Verse 1 talked about the Lord being my light and my salvation. Verse 9, O God of my salvation, do not abandon me, do not forsake me. In verse 10, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. There's a question with this psalm and a lot of psalms. Does this psalm describe actual circumstances or is it hypothetical? In this case, I tend to think some verses in this psalm are hypothetical. I think verse 3 
For example, though a host encamp against me, and the war arise against me, maybe that the writer is a warrior, maybe David is thinking of conflicts that he's had, but, but, but he may be using that figuratively. And in verse 10, he may be using this figuratively. Though my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me up. But what are you stressing? It's when the greatest sources of human loyalty fail. God will still be there. I, if you haven't heard me reference this, you will again sometime, Lord willing. Because this was profound on several levels, but, but I have watched a couple of interviews with with Jeffrey Dahmer that he had in prison. Now, you younger people, that doesn't even mean anything to you. Uh, but he was a mass murderer. Uh, a mass murderer and pretty grotesque mass murderer who was baptized for remission of sins in prison. The thing that was most powerful about his interview is his defense of his belief in God. It was it was pretty powerful. He was not an illiterate person. He was a very thoughtful person. But one of the things about that interview that was really fascinating too is because they interviewed his mother and father extensively. What would it be like for your child to be Jeffrey Dahmer? I cannot imagine. In a very real sense, and God help me because I'm not prepared for either I would have rather my child be one of the victims of his than to be the perpetrator. But what I'm simply saying is they were horrified by his deeds, but they didn't give up on him. They didn't give up on him. But I want to tell you, your mom and dad are more likely to give up on you than God is. This is not the only verse that says this. This is not the only verse that says it. Some make a comparison between the Father's love and our love. And some just go ahead and say, no, God's love is greater. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 103, verse 13. Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That is making a comparison. As a father has compassion on his children, that picture can be used as an illustration of God's compassion for us. 
But listen to this verse. This is Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 verse 15 is the verse that I want to uh, stress in particular. But let me set it up. Isaiah 49 verse 14. Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. That's what Zion said. This is God's answer in verse 15. In verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Now, not much horrifies us in our day and time. But stories of these girls occasionally that you hear who have a child and leave them in the restroom where they were and run away and disappear, those horrify us. How in the world could a mother do that? Most all the world understands that principle. But a mother is more likely to do that than God is to do that. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? These may forget, but I will not forget. God is less likely to forget than a mother or father is to forget. Since we're there... Let's look at his next verse in Isaiah 49. Verse 16. I have inscribed you. This is what God's saying to Zion. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. I don't know if we can appreciate how unique that verse would be to the Bible. Um... Sometimes slaves had written on their hands the name of their masters. And that image is even used in this section of Isaiah to talk about how God will write His name on His people's hands. Uh, Isaiah 44 verse 5 has that kind of idea. But here it is not the master the master's name being written on the hand of the slave. But it is in effect the slave's name written on the hand of the master. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. God has His name. God has our name on His hand. I said... In a way, it's a silly statement. In a way, it's a profound statement. But the statement, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. There's there's something profound about that. And that is a passage that demonstrates it. God's love is greater than the love of a mother and father. And you know, when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount says, if your child shall ask for a fish, you don't give him a serpent. If he asks for bread, you don't give him a stone. He said, if you then, being evil, this is Matthew 7, 7 to 11, if you then being evil, does that teach total hereditary depravity? No. It teaches that we're all imperfect 
And we all sin. But in spite of the fact that I fall short in sin and you fall short in sin, if our children ask for bread when they're hungry, we don't give them a rock. When they ask for fish, we don't give them a serpent that will bite them. If that is true of those of us who fall far short of the ideal, how much more will it be true of God? As powerful as the picture of the prodigal son is, and that's a powerful picture. That is a powerful picture. And in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells a modern day story that he knew of. It's about as close to the parable of the prodigal son as anything I've heard that dramatically demonstrates that truth of that parable. But as powerful as that parable is, it's inadequate. It is inadequate because God doesn't give up. There's a person I was in high school with and I was with for a semester at FC. Who has not turned his back on God a long time ago. The last night I saw him was at my wedding. Um, in 84 and uh, he told someone through a friend that God's given up on him and and I try if I don't contact anyone else when I'm in a meeting in Middle Tennessee I try to contact him and he's never responded he's never responded he's never Call back. He's never responded to the message that I've written, invited. But Lord willing, I'm going to keep on trying just to tell him God hasn't given up. God hasn't given up on you. And so younger people or older people, when we reach the end of our rope and some who we never thought would turn their backs on us, Stab us in the back. I want you to know when the most reliable sources of human comfort fail, the Lord will take us up. The Lord will take us up. And that's what Psalm 2710 says. May God help us all to realize that. In understanding that, Understanding who God is. God's greatness. He says in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Now, for those of you who've been in the Proverbs class that, that Bob and Phil have, have taught, in Proverbs 4 and in Proverbs 6, these words, teach and lead, were both used of a parent's responsibilities to their children. 
And this is interesting that in this very context where he says God's love is more faithful than their love, he then says, teach me your way, O Lord. The Lord is stepping into the role of the parent and he is teaching the things and leading in the way that the parent should lead it. God is our ultimate guide. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. And do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, such as breathe out violence. They have violent intent. They, they, they speak false testimony. But the Lord is His light and His salvation. What thoughts do you have on that section? Is he's begging God, deliver me. He just explains the crisis in verse 12, among other places. But as he begs God to hear him, any, any thoughts right there? Yes, Anne-Marie. Well, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, our response when God says, speak my face, you know, you might just say, okay, you know, like, yeah. this is David's heart. Yes, yes, it's Psalm of David. David's heart responds yes. to God. Yes. He does seek the face of God. I mean, that's he is a man after God's own heart for several reasons, but he he longed to be in God's presence and he longed to worship God and longed to be in his house. And um what, what a powerful statement that is. Was, was, there any, was there part of a question in that, or were you just stating it? No. Okay. I was just thinking that you can say anything to God. You know, I said, yeah, I'll seek your face, but maybe we didn't mean it. Yeah. But when your heart says it. Yes. Yes. It. Yes, that's right. Yes. He, he, from, he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, good example of that. The Bible says, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, unless that what? <laughs> usually this kind of statement in the Bible, in this word that's translated unless, usually it addresses, it, it describes the situation and then gives the circumstance. But here, it doesn't say what the alternative is. Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And, and he, he just describes the circumstances, but doesn't say what would have happened if he didn't see it and didn't believe it. By the way, and I have used this phrase too before, uh, who was the... It was an old... I don't know if this was like in Puritan days. For some reason, I'm associating this story with Cotton Mather. That was late 1600s, wasn't it? Cotton Mather. Any Cotton Mather disciples here? Um, as far as I know, he was not in my family genealogy like William Penn was. But, but Cotton Mather was once asked... He was once written... I think it was he that was written... That they, he, they said, are you in the land of the living? Are you still in the land of the living? And he wrote back and says, no, for all I am here is in the land of the dying. Now, that is, that's a good statement. It's a good statement. I've used that before in sermons and may use it again. 
Don't get on to me about using it again. But the Bible does call this world the land of the living. It does use that expression 15 times in the Old Testament. Here in verse 13 is one of them. The land of the living. Now let me tell you one interesting point. It's my, the, time, the place where it's used most frequently is in Ezekiel 32. Ezekiel 32 uses the phrase the land of the living right often. But Isaiah 38 verse 11 uses this. This is the prayer of Hezekiah when he's just found out that he's going to live 15 more years. And he speaks of the fact that he's been rescued from death and now you know, he is in the land of the living. So that's not an unscriptural phrase uh, even though I understand that reply that we are in the midst of a land of dying. But he said, unless I had believed, I would see the goodness of God. Remember Psalm 23 said, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's the same root word here. He believes he'll see the goodness of God in this life. And he says, wait for the Lord. The encouragement because he believes he will see God's goodness is to wait for the Lord. And that is stated twice here in verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. It's the same words used to, to Joshua and Joshua uses to the people in Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous in the midst of troubles, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of our lives falling apart. Be strong and courageous and wait. Wait for the Lord. This in verses 1 through 6, we might read this and we might think this person is immune from fear. He has such a clear vision of God that nothing discourages him or nothing derails him. But I think the very words in verses 7 through 14 indicate he knew about the problems of life firsthand and he knew the difficulties of waiting on God in the midst of these problems. Now, waiting on the Lord means different things in different circumstances. Um, one of the passages I love that uses that phrase, wait on the Lord, is in Proverbs twenty twenty two. Let me just read it. And let me ask you what waiting on the Lord means here. <clears throat> Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. And He will save you. What does waiting for the Lord mean there? Not taking vengeance. And if somebody does me bad, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get even with them. Wait on the Lord. Wait on. Now, every time that that phrase is used, the idea, you know, you just somebody's done you wrong, and you're no, not every time, but it is there. Waiting on the Lord can mean different things in different contexts, but it is a recognition. That our time scale and our calendar is not the same as His. And we wait on Him to act in His time and in His way. Wait for the Lord. Believing that God will work things out in His time and His way. 
and without going into details and was it something that doesn't involve anybody here at this congregation I was reminded of the power of these words recently wait on the Lord God will take care of problems God will take care of difficulties and it is beautiful when God does in his time and in his way do that does it demand that we be strong and courageous while we're waiting absolutely it may not be as hard as going in and fighting seven nations who are stronger and mightier than we are but then again it may (laughs) be strong and courageous wait for the Lord always look at to what the Psalms say about God who God is he is our life he is our salvation he is our rock or that's that's the, the term rock as we've already talked about and what Sarah said is identified with God more in 28 but but um, always look for what they say about God but to what does this psalm say? about Jesus how would you see Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 27 okay the Lord is my light you think we can say that of Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. Which gospel has specifically said that? John. John. Very good. John eight twelve says that. Um, it also says it in John nine five. It is interesting in John nine five when it says it. It's the the construction is not the same as it is in the other I am statements in the Gospel of John. That I am the light of the world. And really from the opening verses, in him was light, and the light was the life of men. Christy also mentioned, uh, Jesus is my light, he is my salvation. And certainly the name Jesus even indicates that as we talked about in our series on Matthew. He will save His people from their sins. So He is light. He is salvation. What else do you see in this? How else would you connect Psalm 27 with Jesus? Verse 2, he certainly had evildoers that uh, tried to consume him. Okay, he did. And appeared to succeed okay. for a time. Okay, you're right. Let's, let's save that one for the end, okay? Let's save that for the end. But you're very, you're, you're right. Look at all the terms that are used to describe... Um, the enemies. I think you see this in verse 2, verse 6, verse 11, 12, that you find terms like adversaries, 
enemies, adversaries, enemies, evildoers, false witnesses, All of these are people who are opposing Jesus. Hmm, did Jesus know anything about that? Did he ever have any enemies or adversaries? Or experience penalty from false witnesses? Um, he experienced all of these things. And also, um, Jesus noticed in verse 7 of Psalm 27, the Bible says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. Jesus offered up His prayer in Hebrews 5-7 with strong crying and tears. Strong crying and tears. Jesus was in effect saying, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Now, do you already recognize something in just these few illustrations we've given? That in some of these illustrations we have given, the first two in particular, Jesus is the God of Psalm 27 who provides light and salvation. But Jesus is also... The righteous sufferer of Psalm 27 who experiences false accusations from false witnesses. Jesus is both God and man. And remember when we talked about the virgin birth. We talked about the fact that He is in Job 9, 32 and 33, the fulfillment of that umpire who can lay his hands upon both parties. He can identify with God for he is fully God. He can identify with man for he is fully man. And so Jesus is both God in Psalm 27 and he is the one who cries out to God, the righteous sufferer who has been falsely accused. Now, back to the verse that David mentioned in verse 2. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. In the cross, his enemies and his adversaries come against him. They come against him, and this is preeminently displayed by the cross and stirring up the city, and saying, crucify Him, crucify Him, and yet, they fall, they stumble in the process. This event brings about their destruction, not His. It may look like, as David said just a second ago, it may look like they're prevailing. It may look like they have the upper hand, but that is just... That is just a momentary appearance because it is not true. Now, I'll tell you a passage that goes really well with that. This are these verses in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Colossians 2, 14 and 15, when the Bible talks about the Christ of 
to the cross of Christ that He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which were against us, which was hostile to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, through the cross, God triumphed over the forces of wickedness. He triumphed over His enemies. He disarmed rulers and authorities. The very act where they sought to bring about His destruction brought about theirs. I know you don't remember everything first time. So let me say it a second time for those of you who heard this sermon a couple of weeks ago. First time for, for those of you for for Rhonda and, and Ray who, who are visiting with us. And I think this is a powerful point. Joseph is a righteous man and does not want to make a public display of divorcing his wife. He wants to do it secretly. He doesn't want to make a public display. That word is used only in Matthew one nineteen and in Colossians 2.15. What Joseph doesn't want to do to Mary, he doesn't publicly want to embarrass her. God does to Christ's foes through the cross and resurrection. He publicly displays his victory over them. He publicly embarrasses them and shames them. Powerful. I think it's a powerful concept. But the very acts that they thought brought his destruction, it brought about the fall of his enemies. What else do you see? Any? I may have missed something in Psalm. Um, I'll tell you one thing I did miss. Another word we need to throw into this mix here of all that Jesus experienced. How many times do we see Jesus forsaken? In verses 9 and 10. His disciples forsook him. That disciple, that young one who left his coat behind and flees, he forsook him. And that word that's used here in the Greek translation is even used in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six of the Father. Why have you forsaken me? I don't know all the answers about those things. But I'm saying Jesus can identify with us in our suffering. And He identifies us and He loves us as the God who wants to save us. May we stand in awe of Him. Let's have our prayer and then we'll have Brad. You do have a song, don't you, Brad? Okay, let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this time to study. Help us to write this on our minds and hearts. And help us 
to remember this in times of crisis. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for our fears. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. As Brad's passing that out, there is one thing that I wanted to share with you that I forgot. I wanted to bring you a commentary. I wanted to bring a commentary tonight um, that, that had a powerful statement at the end of it. The writer said that this psalm was a favorite psalm of his. And he said it became a favorite psalm of his when he was 15 years old. He said, when I was 15 years old, I was diagnosed with, with uh, bone cancer. And he said, as a result of that cancer, I lost both of my legs. Both of my legs were amputated. I had 10 surgeries on my lung. And he said, I wondered if I would ever survive. If I would ever survive, would there, would I ever have a chance for anybody to love me or care for me? Um, but he said, the words of this psalm strengthened me and lifted me up in that time. May the Lord use the words of this psalm to pick us up and to strengthen us. God bless.